0: They gave him some fun ones this morning too. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. I have the opportunity to open up God's word with us this morning. We are going to be continuing our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3, looking at the last five verses, verses 13 through 17 today i am excited for what we get to see. Uh, last time I was up here, I tried to tackle a whole chapter and uh That was a lot. Today I got five verses, but man, these are some rich verses that we get to look at about who this Jesus is, this Messiah that we were just praising with our mouths. Now we get to turn to the word of God and see more of his beauty, his grandeur, his grace, his kindness, how worth it it is to tie our lives to him and say, yes, Lord, teach us. We wanna be apprentices with you, learning from you that we might be with you and the first three chapters of the book of Matthew we've been going through, we've seen the genealogy of this Jesus. We've, we've read the account of his birth throughout the whole time. Matthew keeps peppering in these ideas that the things that are happening in the birth of Jesus are fulfilling or filling up with even more meaning the themes and the patterns of God's story with Israel through the Old Testament. Last week, Bob Krejcik was up here. He was teaching us about John the Baptist, this voice in the wilderness that Isaiah talked about who would come and prepare the way for the Lord because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He went out to the Jordan River. He called people to a baptism of repentance, to be dunked with water as a symbol of their need for repentance, to turn and to follow. there's an even greater baptism coming. Remember this from last week? John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the guy who's coming after me, he's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire. He's got this winnowing fork in his hand. He's gonna separate the wheat from the chaff. He will bring judgment and clarity to who are those who are God's people and who are those who are not. That's who I'm preparing the way for. Now this guy sounds like a pretty big deal, right? Now we as readers, we know who it is that John's been preparing for. He's the one that Matthew's been talking about through the first two chapters, it's Jesus. But the crowds of people there listening to John did not know who this person was. We're not even necessarily sure all of what John knew about who exactly this person was. And so with all of that big buildup that John gives him, when Jesus comes on the scene, It's a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it, a little bit? He comes in almost anonymously, just as one of the multitude of people who would come to be baptized by John. He doesn't immediately bring that greater baptism. He comes first to be baptized by John. That's the part of the story we're gonna look at today. So again, in your Bibles, starting in Matthew 3, verse 13, here's what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest or remain on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Again, like I said, this is a short passage, but it is a massive one. I mean, for starters, look back at verse 15. These are, is that verse 15 or no? There it is. These are the first words that Jesus himself speaks in the gospel of Matthew. These are the first words that Matthew puts on Jesus' lips as he's arranging the story of Jesus' life. And what is this first statement about? Jesus is speaking about fulfillment. That's fitting, isn't it? This is what Matthew's been showing us throughout the first two chapters how the themes and the patterns of God's work in the Old Testament are filled up and filled with new significance. They continue and expand in the story of Jesus. So I think the fact that the very first words that Jesus speaks in this gospel are about something being fulfilled, this is Matthew cluing us in. Hey, you want to know where I got this idea that Jesus came to fulfill and fill up the story of Israel? I learned this from my master. I'm his apprentice. I view Jesus through the lens of fulfillment because that's how Jesus viewed himself. But here's the question. What does it mean that Jesus being baptized by John would fulfill all righteousness? This is something that's puzzled scholars kind of for a long time. And perhaps this is one where it's, the best way for us to get started this morning is almost by process of elimination. What does it not mean? For starters, I would say this. Jesus being baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness does not mean that there was something lacking in Jesus's righteousness, that there was some gap or unrighteousness in him that needed to be remedied by being baptized. John's was a baptism of repentance. People came confessing their sin, but Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, though he was tempted in every respect like we are, yet without Sin. He had no sin to confess. He had no need to turn from sin to God because he'd never turned away from God in the first place. So, first thing we can say is this was not about fulfilling or filling up some lack in Jesus. The other thing I think that we can clearly say is it's not like once Jesus went through the waters of baptism, checked the box, all righteousness is fulfilled perfectly forever. There's much more that Jesus will do and say to demonstrate the righteousness of God. But I think what Jesus is saying in, the, in this statement is he's saying, John, it's right. It's fitting for us to do this now because it fits the pattern of fulfillment that my ministry is all about. For one thing, Jesus' baptism by John fulfilled John's ministry. That makes sense, right? If John came as the voice and crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Messiah, that role was fulfilled when the Messiah came and was baptized by him. He fulfilled the ministry of John. I think that's why Jesus says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says it's fitting for you and I, John, to do this together because it establishes that clear connection between what John was doing and what Jesus will do. And the transition from John's ministry to Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of other ways it's been fun to explore this week of where we could take this whole idea of what's being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. It's super rich. Matthew, this dude loads this book with so much biblical wealth. I, let's keep studying this together, Right? Let me pick one though. Here's the one main thing I want to go after this morning. I want to explore the way that the event, what happens here with the baptism of Jesus fulfills and expands on that theme of Emmanuel. Emmanuel that Matthew talked about back in chapter one. Remember, the angel comes to Joseph and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The baby inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, all of that took place to fulfill, fill up with new significance what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What does the baptism of Jesus by John reveal about God with us? I wanna look at it from two main vantage points. First, what this event reveals about who our God is. And then second, what it reveals about how God is with us, why he's with us, the manner in which our God is with us. Does that make sense? I say that too much. They told me that in our sermon prep meeting. I say, does that make sense too much? So maybe I need to have a buzzer where you like zap me every time I say it. I'll work on it. <laughs> so first, what does John, John, Jesus' baptism reveal about our God? Well, for that, look again at what happens right after Jesus gets baptized. Watch this. When Jesus is baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, Stop there for a second. Do you remember when we were going at the, during the summertime as we were going through the Great Commission? We looked at this word, behold, where Jesus says, behold, I'm with you always. And we said, that word's good to pay attention to because that's what it means. Pay attention. Look, focus. This is important. Something's being said here, communicated here that you have to get. Jesus comes up out of the water and behold, the heavens are open to him The spirit descends on him like a dove and remains on him. And behold, there it is again. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. This is massive. Why the double behold? Pay attention. Here's why I think. Because I think at this moment, in the whole flow of God's story leading up to this moment, this is the clearest glimpse that we have yet been given about the nature of this God who is with us. Think about this for a second. All the way back, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter one twenty six, when God creates humans, what does he say? Let us make man in our image. So God is in us, what does that mean? Keep reading. Keep reading, watch the way that this theme of the usness of God unfolds. As a matter of fact, if you go a little bit earlier in Genesis one, in Genesis one verse two, we read of this, this one who's called the spirit of God, who's hovering over the waters at the very beginning of creation. And then throughout the story, we see this spirit of God called the Holy Spirit active within the story. When we come to Exodus, the burning bush with Moses, God reveals to Moses his name. Yahweh this is who I am I am who I am and yet throughout the story we also regularly come across this being who's called the angel of Yahweh and when he shows up it's interesting because he both speaks as Yahweh and then in some ways is distinguishable from Yahweh what do we do with that This is what I think is so powerful. All these hints and clues planted throughout the story of the Old Testament, showing us that the Almighty, Infinite Creator God, the source and point and goal of everything that exists, is an us and an I. That He is persons in community, a fellowship. And in the baptism of Jesus, that theme of the usness of God is filled up, fulfilled, revealed in even greater clarity than ever before. Again, look at this. When Jesus was baptized, when he came up from the water, behold, the spirit descends on him like a dove. And then behold, this voice from heaven calls Jesus his son. So who is the one who's speaking if he says that this is his son? The Father, what is being revealed about this God who is with us? He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. The Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons. Now I'll tell you this right now, anytime I've had to try to teach on the Trinity, I feel small, my words feel feeble. How do we wrap our minds around this? I mean, think about this, this right here, this is not the moment where Jesus somehow becomes the son of God. That's a teaching that's been prevalent throughout the history of the church called adoptionism, that Jesus was just maybe a very good man, Perhaps even a sinless man, and God looks at him and says, Hey, I'm going to promote you up to the level of my son. I'm going to somehow deify you, and now you are my son. That's not what this is saying. What is revealed when the Father speaks from heaven and declares Jesus as his son is not who Jesus becomes at this moment, but who he has always been for all of eternity the eternal Son of the Father. The father is the eternal father of the son. Now that, that can be hard to wrap our minds around. I mean, even for those of us who are fathers or mothers, parents, or we are all children at some point, we have some context for that parent-child relationship. But especially as parents, right? We can remember life before that. Being a father or a mother is not inherent to our identity. It was an additional identity or role that we took on at the moment that our children were born or adopted or brought into our family. But there has never, ever, ever, ever been a time when the father was without the son. And there has never been a time where the son was without the father. It is who they have been for all of forever and who they have always been in their relationship to each other. And the Spirit, there has never been a time when the Spirit has not been co-equal, personal participant in that triune relationship of God. So again, what's being revealed in the baptism of Jesus is not something new about God, but who he has always been. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal of the same essence, perfectly unified in their workings so that as hard as it is to to wrap our finite minds around, we can truly say that this God whom we serve and worship and hang our lives on is not more three than he is one. He is not more one than he is three. He is, they are triune. One God eternally existing in three persons. Just stop and contemplate that for a moment. You will feel small and this God will feel big. And that is a very good thing. A lot of commentators think that, that what's recorded here in Jesus' baptism very intentionally mirrors what we see recorded back in the beginning of Genesis 1. I mentioned before this idea of the spirit hovering over the waters. Take a look at this with me real quick. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that exists, exists by the God who, from the God who has always existed. <clears throat> Excuse me. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. Here's the image. The Spirit hovering over the waters. Then God speaks and creation unfolds. Here's something that's really interesting. There's something called the Targums. They were Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. Aramaic was was the, the language commonly spoken by the people of Judea in Jesus's day. It's most likely the language that Jesus spoke as well. And in the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, right here in Genesis chapter one, verse two, the rabbis at the time who were translating it, inserted a phrase. They inserted this phrase. The spirit of God was hovering like a dove over the face of the waters to describe the, the nature, the, the brooding, if you will, like a, like a mother hen over her chicks bringing life to this world. They were trying to clarify the nature of that, that, that hovering activity of the Spirit. And most commentators think that that is what Matthew, Mark, Luke are referring to in the baptism of Jesus when they refer to the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, Not that there was a bird that landed on Jesus. We're supposed to understand the symbolism is the spirit. The point being communicated is that a new creative event is about to take place like what we saw in Genesis 1. Jesus comes up out of the waters. The spirit is there fluttering like a dove with him and then God speaks. But this time, he doesn't say let there be light or plants or trees or animals. He's already done that. Now, what the father speaks into this world that he spoke into existence, that he spoke and declared good, even though it has been defiled and corrupted by our rebellion against this God. What the father says now is that this is my son. I love him. I delight in him, I think that is profound and worthy for us to stop and marvel at for a moment. The God who is with us is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Why is God with us? Why has Jesus come to reveal God with us? Why did the Father send him? Why did the Spirit anoint him? To save his people from their sins? yes. Absolutely, that's what the angel told Joseph back in chapter one. To bring that greater whole baptism with the Holy Spirit in fire? Yes, that's what John said. But what does the Father say here? Why did he send the Son? Because he loves him and he delights in him. Because he loves him and delights in him. In sending Jesus as God with us, the Father, think about this is sharing with us the one that he loves, the one who brings him the utmost joy and delight. And he sent him to be with us so that the joy that the father takes in the son, we might delight in him too. Think about that for a moment. That, that's what makes the Trinity not just some doctrine that we believe. Oh yeah, we have to believe that because Christians have always believed. Or just try to study or say it's like an egg or phases of water or some cheesy illustration like that. It's not also just some, some doctrine we put up on the shelf to gather dust because we can't wrap our minds around it. Maybe someday I'll understand it. Instead, the Trinity, I believe, is the most delightful most foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. This doctrine that God is three in one is meant to ignite our joy and love and desire for this God as we see the joy and love and delight that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have shared forever. And then think that's what God created us to join in. Think about this with me. I came across this quote from Tim Keller. This is actually a book that he wrote called uh, Jesus the King uh, on the book of Mark. But hey, guess what? John uh, Mark's gospel records Jesus' baptism too. And here's what he says about the nature of our God revealed in this baptism. I think this is great. Watch this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each centering on the others, adoring and serving them, And because the Father, Son, and Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another, God is infinitely and profoundly happy. Think about this. If you find someone you adore, someone for whom you would do anything, and then you discover that this person feels the same way about you, does that feel good? It feels sublime, Keller says. And then he says this that's what God has been enjoying for all eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are pouring love and joy and adoration into one another, each one serving the other. They are infinitely seeking one another's glory, and so God is infinitely happy. That's amazing if that's who our God is, if that is what God has been experiencing for all eternity, this also really clarifies for us what God's motivation must have been in creating the world and beings like you and me in the first place. Not out of need, but out of generosity to share this happiness with us. He's not creating because he's lonely, but because he is fully fulfilled in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and wants to welcome us into that. Stop and think about that for a moment. We were made by God in his image so that he might share his presence with us through the Holy Spirit so that we who exist as an expression of the love and delight and generosity of the Trinity might participate in the love and delight of the Trinity. But that makes the problem that we face so much more apparent, doesn't it? The problem that our sin creates, the problem that our sin reveals is that with all of that delight and glory that we were created to share in, we thought we could find better on our own we thought we could find better on our own. When Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, they decided to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't just violate God's command. They didn't just break God's law and bring counsel. They were violating their very reason for being. That inward, that selfish turn from trust and delight and joy in God to seeking delight and meaning, significance on our own terms as we could create it and protect protect it for ourselves man, that tears at the very fabric of reality. It doesn't work. It cannot hold. It was the antithesis of that self-giving love of the Trinity, which is why we exist and for which we exist. And if the triune God is the one who gives us life, this is why our rebellion against that God brings death. Death. And now all of us, these descendants of Adam and Eve that we are, we inherit those same inwardly turned, selfish hearts, that same curse of death. And yet the glorious good news of the gospel of our triune God is that he is at work, united together in a mission to overcome our evil and bring us back to himself. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. Think about it. John 3:16. Why did God send his son? Because he loved the world in spite of ourselves. So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I love the way that John puts it in 1 John chapter 4 when he says this: In this is love. In this the love of God was manifest or displayed among us that God sent his only son. He sent him into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that perpetuation, that satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Why did God send, why did the father send Jesus to be God with us? Because in spite of our rebellion against him, our God loves us. He loves us. Why did God send Jesus? To call us back into his love to make a way ultimately through his death and resurrection to remove what stood between us and him. This is why Jesus came to be God with us. And that is good news. Amen? It is good news. But whether you have walked with Jesus for a few days or a few decades, there is more good in that news than, than you yet understand because this God is infinitely glorious and because our sin and selfishness runs deeper than we realize. Man, I think about myself as a kid who grew up in the church, who by the grace of God, I came to know Jesus at a young age, probably about seven years old. Through simple truths like that, that simple children's song, Jesus loves me. I learned that Jesus loves me. (laughs) that He loves me. But man, I can tell you over the last 30 plus years of following this Jesus, as I've grown from childhood to adulthood as a follower of Jesus, I have learned much more about this Jesus who loves me and about me. And that makes the simple truth of that simple song, Jesus loves me, get bigger and bigger in my mind. Jesus, the Jesus who loves me is the eternal Son of the Father, the one in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and life. That Jesus loves me. He loves me with my short temper, with my laziness, with my lust, with my selfishness, with all the other things that I recognize as unlovely about me and still he loves me. Little ones to him belong, right? That's what the song says. They are weak. And man, as I get older, I see so much more of that weakness, that weariness how easily discouraged I can be. And you know what? I find so much comfort in the idea that idea that though we are weak, he is strong. He is stronger than I realize. Hebrews one says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power and that strong Jesus loves me. That's beautiful. I'm so grateful for that. That gracious love for people like me who don't deserve it, I see that on display here at the baptism of Jesus too. Don't you? Think about it, all these glorious truths about this triune God, about the nature of our God are revealed in what setting? When Jesus comes to be baptized by John. But who else was coming to be baptized by John? Remember back earlier, it says people from all Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and the Jordan, they were all going to him. They were being baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And Jesus came to be baptized with them, with people like that. I mean, we already talked about the, the reality that Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. He had no need to confess sin. He is without sin. John was so right in what he said a couple of verses after than this. Jesus is so much higher and more glorious and holier than we are that we are not worthy to carry his shoes. And yet... Jesus comes to be baptized with people who were willing to confess their sin, their need for repentance, their need to be reconciled to the King. He came to identify with people like that, sinful, struggling people like you and me. Not to identify as a sinner, because he's not, but to identify with, sinners the very people he came to save. More specifically, Jesus came to be baptized to identify with those who were willing to acknowledge and confess their sin. As he'll say later in Matthew 9, Jesus came like a doctor for the sick, not for those who think they're healthy on their own. Those are the kind of people that Jesus came to be with. It's here amid sinners and strugglers confessing their sins and struggles that the triune nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is revealed in greater clarity than ever before. Why this setting? Because not only does it reveal the triune nature of our God, it reveals to us the character, the heart of this God who is with us. Listen to the way Isaiah says it. Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, and also, thank you for that. And also with him who is of a contrite, a crushed or lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. This is our Emmanuel. This is the God who's with us. This is what he has come to do, to revive us, to rescue us, to call us back into the love and fellowship of the Trinity because that's what we were made for. Now, in our last couple of minutes, I want you to go from here in Matthew 3 with this event that marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry and all the way to the end, the ministry of Jesus, which culminates in his death and resurrection and then concludes in Matthew 28 with his commission to his disciples. Think about the imagery, the the truths we've seen in Jesus' baptism and look again at this commission. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And what do we do? We baptize them in preparation for the Messiah like John did? No, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune God revealed in the baptism of Jesus. Do you see the parallel there? In his baptism, Jesus came to identify with sinners and strugglers like us and to reveal the identity of our triune God. And then to those who come to him and trust in him and say, yes, Jesus, you are my king. He says, okay, now it's time to identify with me. Now it's time to identify yourself, root your identity, not who you say you are, not who the world around you says you are, not who your parents say you are, not who you want to be. Root your identity in this. Through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, you have been called back into the fellowship and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the reality that we confess and recognize every time we baptize someone in these tanks. Through Jesus, God has made a way to bring us back into fellowship with himself, not only to forgive our sins, not only to give us eternal life instead of eternal fire, but to call us back into that mysterious dance of love of the Trinity. That's what we were made for. That's what we were saved for. So I say this to you, my brothers and sisters if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not yet identified yourself with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through baptism, you should. You absolutely should. If you're interested in being baptized, if you want to talk to somebody about what it means, I'd love to talk with you. One of the other pastors or leaders up by the prayer room would love to talk with you. If you don't want to do that, there's also a page on the website. You can go to cornerstoneseme.com, about. Click down on that drop-down menu to baptism. There's a simple form. You say, yeah, please contact me. I want to talk to somebody about baptism. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, love to talk with you and pray with you as well. This Jesus who we've been singing to and now talking about, he is high and exalted. He is worthy of our worship. That's why we wanna make a big deal out of him every Sunday we gather together. But he's also gentle and humble. He is a friend of sinners. He is near to those who are lowly in spirit. And if you hear those descriptors and you say, yeah, that's me, come to Jesus, come to him you will find refreshment, reviving for your soul. If you're curious about this idea of the Trinity or, or just kinda intimidated by it, what do I do with this? There's a great book I'd love to recommend to you. It's a book uh, by a guy named Michael Reeves and it's called, Delighting in the Trinity. And kinda like the title of that book demonstrates, his argument is to say, again, the Trinity is not just a doctrine we believe or defend, or a mystery we can't map our minds around, this idea that our God is three in one is meant to delight us, delight our hearts. I would highly recommend that to you. He really says, this is the essence of the Christian faith, that our God is three in one. It shapes everything about what it means to walk in relationship with this God. There's much more that we could say and do about all these things. But let me conclude with this. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna conclude by singing a song called King of Kings, in which we say, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, our triune God who is active in creation and rescuing us from our sin. As you consider the baptism of Jesus, this event that starts, marks the beginning of his ministry, remember this, in Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father, In dwelt, anointed by the Holy Spirit, a new creative work of the triune God has begun. In Jesus, the one who is high and lowly has come to be with sinners and strugglers like you and me. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and nothing will ever be the same. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the majesty, the depth, the wonder of it. Thank you that it does make us feel small. If we felt perfectly comfortable with our vision of you, that would mean that our vision of you is far too small for how big and glorious and infinite you are. But thank you, Lord, that we are not left just to piece together an idea of what you you are like on our own. You are a God who delights to make yourself known to us. You are high and exalted, and you are with those who are lowly and discouraged, those willing to confess and acknowledge their need for you. Lord, I pray for those in here, whether they are followers of Jesus or not, Lord, would you help us to see our need for you, to confess our need for you, to find in you that strong savior that we need to meet us in our weakness. You are God with us. Thank you that in spite of the fact that we are born far from you, you come to us out of love, out of your love for yourself, your love for the delight of the Trinity, and to call us to share into that love again. What, what boundless grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.